my question is, what do you do when a diagnosis of a disease comes and you know nothing about it? You don't know who to talk to. You don't know what you don't know. What do you do? That's a dilemma that I faced when my husband was diagnosed with Lewy body dementia. My main goal in meeting Mick's needs was to honor him as my husband, my children's father, and him as a person. I'm Peggy Lineweber, and this is my story. Mick and I were married in 1969. He was a Marine Corps sergeant. Uh, we had four children in the course of 10 years. And so if you would fast forward probably uh, 30 years, 35 years, we faced a very huge obstacle in our lives together, and that was the diagnosis of my husband's Lewy body dementia. There are certain um, characteristics that are unique to Lewy body dementia. Two I can think of right off the top of my head. One is... um, uh, sleep disorder called REM sleep disorder, where after about 90 minutes of sleep, folks with Lewy body dementia, their brain does not shut down their body, and they act out what they're dreaming. They actually fight, they kick, they scream, they will jump out of bed and run into walls because they don't know where they're at. They're asleep, and that's what Mick had, and um, so he jumped out of bed and injured himself a couple of times. Um, When he's thrashing, that means that the person in bed with him, in my case, me, received, you know, fists and kicks and whatnot. It would disrupt my sleep, so I would get up in the middle of the night. He would kind of doze back to sleep because he didn't know what was going on. And I would uh, get on the internet and start researching. I didn't know what I was really looking for. I just put in words and uh, you put in kicking and punching at night. Okay, what does that bring up? So you add information as you gather from one site to the next, and you become a little more uh, adept at understanding how to find out information about certain things. Mm -hmm. Where the road's leading. Right, right. The other thing that occurs for a person with uh, this disease is the, the random inability to process Uh, That was really a curious thing because there were times when he seemed perfectly normal. And, you know, I thought, oh, you're you're imagining or, oh, you're just having a bad day. You were saying those things to yourself Mm -hmm. as uh, justification that you were the one that's uh, inventing all of this, not him actually having. Or I was assessing it in a way that wasn't really uh, correct. He would forget where to turn sometimes when we were driving to a place. Like if we were going to the mall from our house, how many times have we done that over the 30 years that we lived there? And I would have to be uh, what we would call a backseat or shotgun driver, backseat driver. And I know how much that irritated him. I had to be tactful with it so he would not feel uh, bad about himself. But I was noticing I was having to do that more and more. Um, The first evidence that I was noticing of something being different was shortly after Mick had had surgery for deviated septum. Shortly after his surgery, I began to notice that he was less confident. He was much more, um, I don't know how to say it, but uh, just 
having less ability to feel good about himself and his place in the world, and um, he would become forgetful from time to time. It was out of character, out of context of what was really happening for somebody who was his age and had his life experience. My gut was telling me there was something happening. And I think that's an important thing is I really feel that those instincts are truer than we give them credit for. So um, we started thinking in terms of maybe he needed some counseling to develop some coping mechanisms. Um, when we were going to counseling and he was get, he was on some uh, medication, um, the medication was not working. The single medication wasn't working. And... Um, he did prescribe a couple of different medications that were actually counterproductive. We did not realize the fact that they were counterproductive. Nobody knew what his disease was at the time, so there wasn't any uh, finger-pointing or fault you could find with anybody. It was really scary because um, his behavior became almost confrontational and and was very fearful. Was it combative with you? It was, and it was also um, a suspicion about me and relationships I had, and um, he was thinking things that weren't true, and, and he was suspicious of my relationship with our son. It was very bizarre, very bizarre. And he would wake me up in the middle of the night and want to discuss all these issues. And I was still working, and it was uh, you know, just very, very depleting emotionally and physically to have these things happening in our family and not having uh, a reason behind it. So was there a point after all of this bizarre behavior that you decided something's not right and now we got to go find out what again? Uh, what happened was um, Mick started exhibiting vision issues, found out he had a major tear in his right retina. I suspect that the medication may have pushed his blood pressure to a point where in a weakened state his retina possibly already was in. Uh, he may have had a tear already, but I think that that probably lent itself to um, the degree of tear that he had. He had surgery the next day over at St. Vincent's. Uh, They took him out of surgery. They gave him some medication that would typically cause a person to be calm as and uh, you know wake up in a calmer state. But for him, it caused him to um, be combative. And um, this is again a medication that people with his diagnosis should never have because it can be fatal. So, and again, we did not know his diagnosis at the time, so there is no fault to the medical community. But um, the experience of not only that, but his rhinoplasty seven years prior, as I look back now, I realize that those two are related in reference to his um, disease. He was actually experiencing reactions to um, the medication even back then, because both medications are on the list that I do not prescribe for Lewy body dementia patients. But um, and prior to all of this happening, all the eye issues happening, he had had a neuropsychologist uh, do some testing on him. 
we heard from him that they suspected that he had uh, Lewy body dementia. Was he told this is a terminal disease, there's no cure for it? Yes, he was told it, there's no cure, and I believe the doctor uh, may have said something to the effect of from uh, diagnosis to mortality is typically seven years. I don't know how Mick received it because uh, I was processing it for myself. But as we drove home uh, from the appointment, the one thing that he said to me was, I don't want to die. That's the part he understood that that was the diagnosis was a death sentence for him. I don't know how much he truly understood of that, except the fact that that was there was uh, an end. Um, and so our first, my first um, obligation, I felt, um, was to let my children know. Our children, mm. we have four adult children. They um, came to the house. We talked about what we knew, and mm. there wasn't a lot we knew about Lewy body dementia. That was very, very cursory and superficial compared to what we later found out. Mm. As we all started diving into what that meant and uh, how that would change our lives, how that changed Mick's life and the dynamics of what our family was about. The most noticeable change was the change that happened as a result of Mick's eye surgery. Um, That started the decline um, quickly. When a person who has dementia has an issue with their body, um, some sort of infection, a battle that the body is undergoing to repair itself, it makes the person who has a dementia, they lose ground cognitively. The infection or the whatever it happens to the body may clear up, but typically the cognition level never goes back to where it had been. And so oftentimes when a person who has dementia starts acting out and behaving poorly, um, becoming aggressive and uncooperative, there's probably some sort of infection going on. And what, what they typically have is a urinary tract infection. But uh, a month after Mix, or it wasn't even actually a month, it was uh, three weeks later, he did develop a urinary tract infection. Never had one that I was aware of prior to that, but the, the behavior was out-of-the-box bizarre. We had little area rugs, and he would go around the house rolling up those area rugs and sticking them out in the garage. <laughs> I mean, it was just really, really funny. I mean, it was funny, but it was disturbing, too, because the behavior was so erratic and out-of-character and distressing to you know have to deal with that. It was very interesting to watch how he managed. You don't realize the level of uh, commands your brain does even on simple tasks until you have to see how a person with dementia needs to process it and work through that. If you were to tell someone with dementia, especially at that point where Mick was, that uh, instruct him, go in the kitchen and get a spoon. You think that's a fairly simple request. You would go in the kitchen, open the drawer, pick a spoon, take it out, close the drawer, and go back to where you needed the spoon. 
Well, for somebody with dementia, they've got to first of all figure out, okay, what is a spoon? Where is it? Uh, it's in a drawer. What drawer? Uh, open the drawer. Even opening and closing the drawer are tasks that a normal person takes for granted, but a person with dementia has to really work hard to process. Was he able to connect uh, relationally? Uh, not really. Um, very quickly, his ability to engage in meaningful conversation or activity became so limited. Um, he would become, he was like a shell of a person walking around, observing life, it seemed, but not really being able to understand or engage. Uh, another issue with uh, dementia patients, and it, for him, was the, um, he would see things, um, delusions and whatnot. Uh, one of the delusions was a dump truck backed up in our front yard and dumped a huge uh, pile of dirt. Um, he was a Vietnam veteran, and in the backyard, he would see the Vietnamese people out in our backyard in the trees camping out and cooking and stuff like that. Those kinds of just really bizarre and yet understandable, in some ways, um, visions of things that weren't really there. After Mick was diagnosed, uh, formally diagnosed, because he had had the um, eye issue and then the UTI, urinary tract infection, his uh, decline happened pretty rapidly. We had him at home for um, probably two years. We dealt with it at home. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where, because I had to work full-time, we had to make a decision to uh, get some help with uh, care. We interviewed to several homes and made a decision on put, placing him in a home. And um, that was very difficult because he was still aware enough that he had a sense there was a big change coming, and he was right. He still had perceptions of things happening around him to some degree. And I was told by some professionals that I should not engage in the uh, beforehand in sharing with him what we were going to be doing is uh, moving him into an adult family home. And so I didn't at the advice of some professionals. And I don't know that I would change that. But as he was getting in the car, he was asking some questions. And I told him that we were going to need to get some help in his care. And we were um, going to have him live at this place. It was really nice, you know. And he says, I could still hear him say this. So that's the way it's going to be. And while I was filling out some paperwork, um, my son Michael was in the room with his dad. And Michael said to Mick, Dad, we just don't know what else to do. And so here's this man, impaired man, walk over to his adult son and put his arms around him and hug him. And my son cried. That was a very poignant moment I think that was one of the last times he empathized with anything that was going on around him. Um, he stayed in that facility probably for about five months. And we found out that um, in assessing the needs that he had and assessing the facility, we didn't do a good match. For Mick, um, stairs were an issue very quickly. The first place we had him in had one step down, and that soon became a 
obstacle for him. The other thing was that did they have adequate staffing during meals? You need a constant um, uh, uh, coaxing to feed himself. And Mick was very quickly getting to that point where being fed was the only way he was going to get enough nutrition at each meal. And they had one person there trying to manage three people. So, and that that's one of the things that helped us understand that he was not in the proper place. And that's one of the things that is important for a family who is needing to use the help of an adult family home is to understand the progression of the disease you're dealing with and find the match as best you can at the time you place your your loved one. Because each time you move them, they lose ground. And their adapting mechanisms are severely impaired for the most part. For dementia patients, processing lots of information puts them into a place where they are so frustrated and so overwhelmed, the only way the only way they cope with it is acting out. In Nick's case, he would grab the caregiver and pick her up and basically scare her to death. The third place that we found was just a lovely, lovely home of um, a husband and wife team that truly worked as a team and treated Mick so lovingly and, and part of their family and just went the extra mile to meet his needs that were very um, diverse and um, involved at the time. Uh, he stayed there for close to two years. And as um, it was obvious that his um, decline was coming close to an end, my oldest daughter came to me and she said, Mom, you know, um, I could get my CNA as certified nursing assistant, and I could take care of Dad here at home. And I said, you know, is that something... you really want to do because you are taking care of basically an infant in every way. And um, that's quite a, a lot of responsibility for anybody, let alone doing it for your own father. Right. I wonder how many people in the medical profession or the psychological profession would actually advise that. And I have a feeling that uh, I know where you're going with this is that Every situation is different, Mm -hmm. and just like the care home or the adult daycare uh, that your husband was able to live with, it has to be a good match. Mm -hmm. So the answer is going to be different for every family. It will be, yeah. Not everybody can uh, deal with the kinds of things that uh, present themselves when you're caring for someone who has the uh, capacity of a child or an infant at this point. But she was definitely gifted in that area and was given grace to uh, embrace that in a very loving and gifted way. And so we brought Mick home. And um, we had a very supportive system through hospice um, and the the, um, support system that they offer both um, emotionally and physically, and with the supplies that you need to deal with somebody at that stage in their life. He would choke a lot and cough a lot, and this was happening over a, a quite a duration of time, a couple of years. The result of that is the tissue in his throat and esophagus was very delicate, 
And um, as he drew closer to death, those tissues were not being regenerated because his body was basically shutting down. And those tissues became a a source of, uh, were problematic because they would bleed. Did you ever think, why me, or I don't deserve this, or uh, what were you feeling? Um, There were times when I questioned why I was living this experience. Um, Yeah, there were days, and I just did not appreciate it, did not understand it. But I do have a strong faith that there are purposes for things that even though we don't understand it, there is a purpose for it beyond ourselves. It wasn't fun, no doubt about that. I did understand that experiences are meant to build us, not destroy us. I chose to dwell on that even though it was painful and difficult. I also knew that I needed to be an example to my kids of what living life was really about, and that was to honor and build character. My main goal in meeting mixed needs was to honor him as my husband, my children's father, and him as a person. That's difficult to do. Yes. When life is easy. And I have talked to quite a few people who cope with it totally differently than I did. Mm. They um, have a hard time appreciating the person that their loved one has become. They want to run away from it. And I can't say that I didn't want to do that. But um, there was another dynamic in my life. The value system that you held on to was holding you at that moment. Yes. I am very grateful for the support system that I had through my work environment, my faith family, my children. Uh, My children were a tremendous support in the last days. I was just so impressed with the quality and character of my children and their spirit to come alongside their dad and honor him. And mm-hmm. uh, even in the presence of that, those last days, we could stand around his bed and chit-chat and joke and draw him into the conversation of it as if he could really understand. And, you know, that just the generous spirit that they showed toward their father in those last days that um, showed me that they are just great people. They're not just my kids. They're great people. In loss, we do find find out who we are. We do. How does that play out in your life now? It gives me a sense of um, the ability to dig deep in a way that I hadn't been able to before, to appreciate people in a way that I hadn't been able to before. I am learning to accept them. Um, I know that I have been a better friend to my children and um, 
uh, there's a whole new dynamic in our relationship. And I, I think that carries over into friendships I have. I, I will accept my friends in their incompleteness, just like they accept me in my incompleteness. Because we all are incomplete. Sounds very much like the phrase unconditional love. Unconditional love, to me, that means that's the first reaction. That's not my first reaction. Hmm. I have to process to get there. The things that um, comes to mind is today they need to have grace extended to them. But I also have all of those initial reactions, the negative reactions that I deal with before I get to that place where I'm saying I need to extend grace. What's your heart for people that are caregivers now? The first thing I want to say is um, you are exceptional. You have an opportunity to um, meet a need that nobody else can, at least for a while, you know, and cut yourself some slack if you find yourself in a place that you just can't do it anymore. That's okay. Don't beat yourself up about the fact that, okay, you've, you've hit the wall. You need to make some other choices. Don't worry about it. You, that's okay. There are statistics out there that say that oftentimes caregivers will pass away before the person who needs the care because of the amount of stress that a caregiver goes through in order to meet the needs. There are a lot of areas of support and help in the community seek those areas out. There is a, a whole lot of adult family homes out there that can be a real resource for you. And if you need to go there, there's no shame in that. The thing that I would suggest to any family that is considering doing that is do your research on the progression of a disease and understand what the needs of the of your family member is going to be over a duration of time. Uh, that was one of the skills that I learned is being more direct and being an advocate. Uh, I'm a very strong advocate for people who can't speak for themselves now. Um, there are certain um, classes and certifications that a, a person who works in one of those homes needs to have to deal with dementia patients because they're unique. Uh, they behave in a unique way. Certain things trigger their behavior, and it can be, um, as we were talking about earlier, it can be issues having to deal with um, infections within their body. It can be triggers of other um, people in the home that, for whatever reason, uh, things they do will make them act out. It can be um, just the environment in itself, that they're, it's too noisy or if a person doesn't deal well with uh, small children or children, the activity of children, that's not the place for them. Some of the homes, and it's perfectly fine, will have uh, an animal like a dog or a cat. And for some residents, that's very soothing. They love that. But for somebody who has peripheral vision issues and not being able to make distinctions between one space and the next, to have an animal that's running around could cause um, risk for falling or, you know, something like that. So you need to be aware of those sorts of things for your loved one. Mm -hmm. That's very good information. I'm thinking about uh, elderly people missing from their home. 
explain that phenomenon? It's interesting because uh, a common denominator with uh, folks with a dementia, they will often say, I want to go home. Now, we lived in our home for 30 plus years when Mick was, or close to 30 years when he was diagnosed. And he would say, I want to go home. Home? What's home? Which home do you mean? And um, one time our son Michael was taking him for a drive and they passed this one street and it was a street that you would typically turn on if you were going to go to the home that he had as a child. And as they drove past that turn, Mick said to him, he says, that's where my daddy lives. So who knows if that, when he said, I want to go home, if that was the home he was referring to, but there's a a sense of loss of connection to more recent things and a deeper connection or something that triggers that desire to go home. I wonder if it's a sense of belonging of that they they remember that they felt like they belonged when they were younger mm-hmm. and the present world seems so foreign. That's probably very well put. That's very well put actually, I think. Um mm. one of the things I'd like to mention is the fact that Clark County has a wonderful support system for families who have potential uh at-risk Uh, wandering off members of their family, they have this little bracelet that they put on them so that if they do wander off, it sends a signal and they can locate them. And we did get one for Mick. We only had to use that once. He did wander off at the adult family home. He wandered off and walked down a very busy street. It was very scary. And because the caregiver was the only one there, she could not leave the other residents to go after him. So I was very grateful that we had that device on his arm to enable them to find him and take him back. Interesting story. My world is bigger because you've shared your world with me, and I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm grateful to be able to do that. You've been listening to Tell Me Your Story, a program that presents real-life experiences of those in our community. Tell Me Your Story seeks to enrich others with factual, positive, and compelling stories. If you're a resident of Southwest Washington and would like to tell me your story, please contact me at tellmeyourstory@coov.com. With the hope of connecting people through stories, I'm Nalene Frunk with Tell Me Your Story.